0: Chapter 1, Part 3 of Partial Portraits by Henry James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Rita Boutros. Emerson, Part 3. That is his private expression about a large part of a ferment, in regard to which his public judgment was that, that indeed constitutes a new feature in their portrait that they are the most exacting and extortionate critics these exacting children advertise us of our wants there is no compliment no smooth speech with them they pay you only this one compliment of insatiable expectation they aspire they severely exact and if they only stand fast in this watch-tower and stand fast unto the end and without end Then they are terrible friends, whereof poet and priest cannot but stand in awe, and what if they eat clouds and drink wind? They have not been without service to the race of man. That was saying the best for them, as he always said it for everything. But it was the sense of there being bands of competing minstrels, and their camp being only a measure and check in a society too sparse for a synthesis, that kept him from wishing to don their uniform. This was, after all, but a misfitting imitation of his natural wear, and what he would have liked was to put that off. He did not wish to button it tighter. He said the best for his friends of the dial, of Fruitlands and Brook Farm, in saying that they were fastidious and critical but he was conscious in the next breath that what there was around them to be criticized was mainly a negative. Nothing is more perceptible to-day than that their criticism produced no fruit, that it was little else than a very decent and innocent recreation, a kind of Puritan carnival. The New England world was for much the most part very busy but the dial and Fruitlands and Brook Farm were the amusement of the leisure class. Extremes meet, and as in older societies, that class is known principally by its connection with castles and carriages. So at Concord it came, with Thoreau and Mr. W. H. Channing, out of the cabin and the woodlot. Emerson was not moved to believe in their fastidiousness, as a productive principle, even when they directed it upon abuses which he abundantly recognized. Mr. Cabot shows that he was by no means one of the professional abolitionists or philanthropists, never an enrolled humanitarian. Quote, we talk frigidly of reform until the walls mock us. It is that of which a man should never speak but if he have cherished it in his bosom, he should steal to it in darkness as an Indian to his bride. Does he not do more to abolish slavery, who works all day steadily in his own garden, than he who goes to the abolition meeting and makes a speech? He who does his own work frees a slave. And quote. I must add that even while I transcribe these words there comes to me the recollection of the great meeting in the Boston Music Hall on the first day of 1863, to celebrate the signing of Mr. Lincoln, of the proclamation freeing the southern slaves, of the momentousness of the occasion, the vast excited multitude, the crowded platform, and the tall spare figure of Emerson in the midst reading out the stanzas that were published under the name of the Boston Hem, They are not the happiest he produced for an occasion. They do not compare with the verses on the Embattled Farmers, read at Concord in 1857. And there is a certain awkwardness in some of them. But I well remember the immense effect with which his beautiful voice pronounced the lines, pay ransom to the owner and fill the bag to the brim who is the owner the slave is owner and ever was pay him and Mr. Cabot chronicles the fact that the gran rifiuto, the great backsliding of Mr. Webster, when he cast his vote in Congress for the fugitive slave law of 1850, was the one thing that ever moved him to heated denunciation. He felt Webster's apostasy as strongly as he had admired his genius, who has not helped to praise him? Simply, he was the one American of our time whom we could produce as a finished work of nature. There is a passage in his journal, not a rough jotting, but like most of the entries in it, a finished piece of writing, which is admirably descriptive of the wonderful orator, and is, moreover, one of the very few portraits or even personal sketches yielded by Mr. Cabot's selections. It shows that he could observe the human figure and render it to good purpose. Quote, his splendid wrath, when his eyes become fire, is good to see, so intellectual it is. The wrath of the fact and the cause he espouses, and not at all personal to himself. These village parties must be dishwater to him." Yet he shows himself just good-natured, just nonchalant enough, and he has his own way, without offending any one or losing any ground. His expensiveness seems necessary to him. Were he too prudent a Yankee, it would be a sad deduction from his magnificence. I only wish he would not truckle to the slaveholders. I do not care how much he spends." I doubtless appear to have said more than enough, yet I have passed by many of the passages I had marked for transcription from Mr. Cabot's volumes. There is one in the first that makes us stare as we come upon it, to the effect that Emerson could see nothing in Shelley, Aristophanes, Don Quixote, Miss Austin, Dickens mr cabot adds that he rarely read a novel even the famous ones he has a point of contact here as well as strangely enough on two or three other sides with that distinguished moralist m ernest renan who like emerson was originally a dissident priest and cannot imagine why people should write works of fiction and thought dante a man to put into a museum but not into your house. Another Zira Colburn, a prodigy of imaginative function, executive rather than contemplative or wise. The confession of an insensibility, ranging from Shelley to Dickens, and from Dante to Miss Austen, and taking Don Quixote and Aristophanes on the way, is a large allowance to have to make for a man of letters and may appear to confirm but slightly any claim of intellectual hospitality and general curiosity put forth for him the truth was that sparely constructed as he was and formed not wastefully not with material left over as it were for a special function there were certain chords in emerson that did not vibrate at all I well remember my impression of this on walking with him, in the autumn of 1872, through the galleries of the Louvre, and later that winter through those of the Vatican. His perception of the objects contained in these collections was of the most general order. I was struck with the anomaly of a man so refined and intelligent being so little spoken to by works of art. It would be more exact to say that certain chords were wholly absent. The tune was played, the tune of life and literature, altogether on those that remained. They had every wish to be equal to their office, but one feels that the number was short, that some notes could not be given mr cabot makes use of a singular phrase when he says in speaking of hawthorne for several years our author's neighbour at concord and a little a very little we gather his companion that emerson was unable to read his novels he thought them not worthy of him this is a judgment odd almost to fascination we circle round it and turn it over and over it contained so elusive an ambiguity! How highly he must have esteemed the man, of whose genius the House of the Seven Gables and the Scarlet Letter gave imperfectly the measure! And how strange that he should not have been eager to read almost anything that such a gifted being might have let fall! It was a rare accident that made them live almost side by side so long in the same small New England town, each a fruit of a long Puritan stem, yet with such a difference of taste. Hawthorne's vision was all for the evil and sin of the world, a side of life as to which Emerson's eyes were thickly bandaged. There were points as to which the latter's conception of right could be violated, but he had no great sense of wrong, a strangely limited one, indeed, for a moralist, no sense of the dark, the foul, the base. There were certain complications in life which he never suspected. One asks oneself whether this is why he did not care for Dante, and Shelley, and Aristophanes, and Dickens, their works containing a considerable reflection of human perversity but that still leaves the indifference to Cervantes and Miss Austen unaccounted for. It has not, however, been the ambition of these remarks to account for everything, and I have arrived at the end without even pointing to the grounds on which Emerson justifies the honours of biography, discussion, and illustration. I have assumed his importance and continuance, and shall probably not be gainsaid by those who read him. Those who do not will hardly rub him out. Such a book as Mr. Cabot's subjects a reputation to a test, leads people to look it over and hold it up to the light, to see whether it is worth keeping in use, or even putting away in a cabinet. Such a revision of Emerson has no relegating consequences. The result of it is once more the impression that he serves and will not wear out, and that indeed we cannot afford to drop him. His instrument makes him precious. He did something better than any one else. He had a particular faculty, which has not been surpassed, for speaking to the soul in a voice of direction and authority. There have been many spiritual voices appealing, consoling, reassuring, exhorting, or even denouncing and terrifying, but none has had just that firmness and just that purity. It penetrates further, it seems to go back to the roots of our feelings, to where conduct and manhood begin. And moreover to us today, there is something in it that says that it is connected somehow with the virtue of the world has wrought and achieved lived in thousands of minds produced a mass of character and life and there is this further sign of emerson's singular power that he is a striking exception to the general rule, that writings live in the last resort by their form, that they owe a large part of their fortune to the art with which they have been composed. It is hardly too much or too little to say of Emerson's writings in general that they were not composed at all. Many and many things are beautifully said. He had felicities, inspirations, unforgettable phrases he had frequently an exquisite eloquence o my friends there are resources in us on which we have not yet drawn there are men who rise refreshed on hearing a threat men to whom a crisis which intimidates and paralyzes the majority demanding not the faculties of prudence and thrift but comprehension immovableness the readiness of sacrifice come graceful and beloved as a bride but these are heights that we can scarce look up to and remember without contrition and shame let us thank god that such things exist none the less we have the impression that that search for a fashion and a manner on which he was always engaged never really came to a conclusion. It draws itself out through his later writings, it drew itself out through his later lectures, like a sort of renunciation of success. It is not on these, however, but on their predecessors, that his reputation will rest. Of course the way he spoke was the way that was on the whole most convenient to him, but he differs from most men of letters of the same degree of credit in failing to strike us as having achieved a style. This achievement is, as I say, usually the bribe or toll-money on the journey to posterity. And if Emerson goes his way, as he clearly appears to be doing, on the strength of his message alone, the case will be rare, the exception striking and the honor great. End of chapter one, part three, EMERSON.